Before we get into the episode, we want to let you know we are gathering another Attaching to God learning cohort. In it, you will escape your anxious jungles and avoiding deserts of faith and grow into secure attachment with God and with others. This is a one-of-a-kind six-week cohort combining recorded teachings and live cohort calls. So you can get all the details at embodiedfaith.life slash learning dash cohorts or see the show notes for details after the description. Did Jesus suffer trauma? Do you think he experienced PTSD? We know that Jesus suffered in his death and maybe at the Garden of Gethsemane, but did he suffer throughout his life? Isaiah 53 says that the servant of God is despised and rejected, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. But what if that pain, what if those sorrows, what if that grief is better expressed as trauma? That's what we're talking about today, this uh, week, this holy week, as we remember Jesus's path, his passion toward the cross. We're talking about Jesus, man of trauma, acquainted with grief. As always, I'm Jeff Holsklaw, and this is the Embodied Faith Podcast, where we're trying to bring in all things embodied neuroscience and faith, uh, and linking that to our spiritual lives. And this is brought to you by Grassroots Christianity, which is seeking to grow faith for everyday people. Today we're joined by uh, one of my good buddies, uh, pastor friend uh, Jeff Cannell. He is the pastor at Vineyard Central in Columbus, Ohio. We just Central Vineyard, Vineyard Central in oh. Cincinnati. Oh shoot! Okay, well there, well this is Jeff. Here we go. So, it, so say it again. So you're where? I know you're in Columbus. We you're... we are directly adjacent to the Ohio State University campus. Okay, excellent, excellent. Well, as I was saying, Jeff and I uh, talk about all sorts of fun things or sorrowful things uh regularly uh we thought we'd just kind of human things put, put this uh conversation kind of on the podcast he uh you you know in some of our conversations jeff you kind of mentioned you know after i released some episodes on trauma or just the things i've been reading in neuroscience you're like yeah you know jesus he was the man of trauma and i was like "Ooh, i like that i, I want to talk more about that so here we are talking about jesus uh man of Trauma, what first for you kind of brought that to mind, like personally or theologically or like how did how did you kind of link that? I hadn't heard that before and I love that. Well, in general, I think we become so familiar with Bible language that we become inured to the emotional impact. And I'm a big fan of like poetry and literature and everything. Words are really important to me. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of off the cuff sometimes. So people may question that. But uh, the idea of one simple word change can totally bring something more visceral into your experience. Mm -hmm. And sorrow is is cool. I mean, it's just a beautiful word, even sorrow. It's poetic. It almost sings. But it's a Bible word. It's a King James word in a way. And uh, But I think the first time I started really um, thinking of it was – Oh gosh, I I can't really say. One particular time was during the kind of a the in beginning of God's work through the Me Too movement in America, and specifically that Easter, um, someone wrote an article I believe for CT, 
about the sexual exploitation of the sexual element of Jesus on the cross being stripped bare, like that was an act of like sexual violence to bring shame on someone, body shame on someone like that in a modest culture. And the idea that his own mother had to see her fully grown son naked, uh, nailed to a cross. And I have just seen how traumatic that brought a whole new element to the pa- the trauma of the passion. Mm. So yeah. th- I think that's where I started thinking a man of trauma familiar with grief and, and kind of replacing that word was uh, thinking of that element of Jesus. Because if Jesus, two things I always go back to, he was tempted in every way common to humans. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, and part of temptation almost all the time is about either avoiding suffering or numbing suffering by filling that void somewhere. And so I think of, you know, oftentimes trauma is linked to self-destructive behavior, even on autopilot, self-harming or, uh, you know, your body just destroying itself sometimes after a trauma. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it gave just, I felt a, a new level of nearness of Jesus just by yeah. changing one word. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, that's, that's what it did with me when you said it the first time. And, and I think like, uh, you're talking about the emotional impact of scripture. And a lot of times we're so like, you know, cognitive Bible focused, doctrine focused when we're reading. And the same is true about Jesus's nature is that so often we're like looking for clues that Jesus was fully God, that he was divine and he's doing all these things. And so we kind of uh, whitewash the the emotional and personal experience of Jesus in the narratives. Um, but I thought, you know, with that in mind, and you kind of listed a couple of things, I thought, well, why don't we go through Jesus's life? Because it's easy to think, oh, yeah, on the cross or in the garden, he bleeds, you know, you know, tears, tears of blood. Um but what was going on in Jesus's life before that, that could have been traumatic. And so um, you, you mentioned like prenatal trauma, right? So we have um, Mary who has this kind of unexpected um, encounter with God and she becomes, you know, with child outside of marriage. Um, and especially in that society, even, you know, even now, like that causes stress hormones to be released in the body. And so that, that affected Jesus even in utero, right? Well, it's interesting when this kind of the when life begins. Uh, James Mumford uses a term that for uh, preborn babies that he called the uh, new ones, mm. new ones, and uh, kind of ascribing personhood to the, the new ones. And I was thinking, you know, we for years we would hear that idea of John the Baptist leaping in the womb, filled with the Holy Spirit, and mm-hmm. you know some of the more sophisticated people would say, Oh, that was her interpretation of that. We know John wasn't aware of this and stuff. And for right. people, I like said, yeah, he was filled with the spirit, but now we have much more knowledge of the emotional life of preborn children. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I wonder what your experience was like being a twin is like, I mean, they've seen pictures of uh, twins comforting each other in the womb. Mm. Right. And so knowing that there is a level of emotional life of a child in the womb. and But then I live in Columbus, Ohio. And the thing is, one way I avoid a lot of partisan and political debates is I just talk about my neighborhood. You know, people want to debate 
concepts of brutality of law enforcement or other things like that. I said, can I just tell you what happened within earshot of my house or what I saw or within my precinct, mm-hmm. you know, keeping it local because then it's, it's my story and I can actually research it. And I know people affected, et cetera, et cetera. So when it comes to prenatal trauma is the, um, I don't know the exact numbers, but, uh, uh, Columbus, Ohio is, is not the level of infant mortality rate is that of a kind of developing country. Mm, Wow. And to even go further, uh, that's specifically among uh, the African-American population, black moms. Mm -hmm. So we have a crisis and I often say like Columbus is the best place for a medical disaster. We've, I've uh, got uh, OSU, James Cancer Hospital, uh, the McConnell Heart Center. We have two of the leading researchers on stroke medicine. I mean, my own father on three different occasions would have died if he was in any other city but Columbus when he had a health crisis. Wow. But we have this infant mortality rate, these precious black children and these mothers that often die through a traumatic birth. Mm-hmm. or. Um, stillbirth and what they've related that to is elevated levels of cortisol regarding mm-hmm. continual stress. And it's been shown that uh, elevated cortisol levels are multi-generational. Right. Right. And uh, once again, I'm saying I'm not the scholar on this. I, so I'm, I pastor a church with a lot of academics and I'm not an academic, but I'm a professional fan of academics I love music, but I don't play guitar. And one of my kind of vocations. Wait, 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 wait. So you could be a vineyard pastor and not play guitar. I I thought that wasn't possible. Actually. I thought as a movement that was part of the pastoral criteria ordination. Well, I have a Hawaiian shirt. I (laughs) don't play guitar, but I, okay. I, I see vineyard as a movement is the Island of misfit toys, but I also see the kingdom is the idol of misfit toys who yeah, God yeah. elevates. So I, uh, vineyard's right. the only place that would take me. All right. Well, I got us a little off in the weeds for the vineyard folk here who are listening, but sorry about um, that. I, no, I, no, I love the whole but, body, uh, but about the, about the prenatal trauma, just, you know, and, and we'll kind of move forward is, uh, you know, and I don't know about the, the emotional life of the new ones, as you say, but there certainly is a neurological kind of structuring that is happening. And at the elevated levels of cortisol, uh, affects that and affects uh, brain structure, which then affect long term um, how emotional and cognitive information is processed throughout the life. Not that those things can't be changed, but it kind of it kind of sets a child, you know, in a certain direction for for certain. Uh, and then, like you said, like uh, things that happen in utero uh, can end up uh, affecting gene expression or epigenetics for. Uh, up to the grandchildren of that mother. It's, so, I mean, it's just wild. So when, tra- when trauma happens to a mother, it can happen. It can change the gene expression two more generations down. So, so, but so Jesus is then, you know, born in Bethlehem after, you know, a trip, unexpected trip. Wait, wait, wait. You're okay. going past here. Maybe we, you, you, we were going to mention some things in Galilee. Well, that- I, well, no, I was just getting to his birth. Okay. So oh, man, I figure I was going to spend two hours on just birth, the prenatal trauma because I think you can go so deep with that. But we, we can't. Let's, let's All do right, that. Well, let's tell, tell me more. Give me the, the bullet point. Give me the bullet point. We don't, well, have, we don't have two hours. So 
Mary, without being uh, thought of as being an adulterer pregnant outside of wedlock, would have in general probably known women who were raped by Roman soldiers. Mm -hmm. Uh, She probably her friends, uh, family. What we know about kind of Galilee on the fringes is the Romans got up to a little more nefarious actions than they did in Jerusalem. Right. And which inspired then the zealots to have their freedom fighters slash terrorist attacks. And so not only that, she, we mentioned Jesus, but she would have seen bodies continually crucified at in, in hung in difficult places. So she had that ongoing uh, just trauma of being a Jewish woman under Roman rule in essentially a continuing captivity under house arrest. Right. And then she becomes someone that, by a lot of people's interpretation of the Torah is worthy of stoning. Mm-hmm. So she literally, I mean, a lot of people for her life get, regularly. Yeah. From so, Romans and Jewish uh, neighbors, friends and relatives. Exactly. Well, I think I don't know as much about the Romans, but I know the Romans, I think tolerate the Jews sometimes enforcing their laws spontaneously. Mm-hmm. So to keep them happy. But the thing that I was thinking about is like, the stress I've known from dear, dear sisters and uh, just different women I've known growing up who, when, when they've become pregnant out of wedlock, it's just a shock. Mm-hmm. Anything now she, she was joy. She hid these things in her heart, Mary song of joy. But the other half of that is she also knew that there are some people that think she should be dead and would like to take part in it because she's pregnant out of wedlock. Right. Right. So I'm just thinking we have cortisol coming from three different directions here in this beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, the donkey ride down to Bethlehem, birth, you know, maybe an unexpected time, maybe full term, who knows. Uh, but then, you know, the, the children are slaughtered. They escape down to Egypt. So now Jesus is being raised socially displaced. Um, you know, maybe not homeless, but certainly an exile, an alien in a foreign land. Um, he, and that, that itself creates multiple levels of stress, maybe even chronic stress, to, you know, and, and we don't want to speculate too much about the lifestyle of Mary and Joseph in Egypt and all these, but you know, you can kind of fill in some of the blanks like there. And Rice already did that in her book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but speaking of, uh, a birth out of wedlock or a questionable situation. How how would Jesus have been raised? What would have been the social pressures of Jesus as a boy? And this is something I think we often kind of forget. You get hints of this in the Gospels, the way Jesus is named by other adults as Mary's son in a, a public context. He's not named as Joseph's son. And so there is an assumption that we can make that Jesus, uh, that his uh you know, his father line was under question uh, and was his whole childhood and even up to adulthood. Now, wh- what do you think that would do? What does that do to children? You know, children are merciless, right? They'll tease you and bully you about anything. Well, I, I certainly think we can't even relate to what it would feel like because in my own lifetime, the stigma of being born out of wedlock or, you know, not having a dad or something on the playground for me is different than what it was. It's more commonplace now. Mm -hmm. So, but I just remember some of the stigma attached to it and realizing that 
that was a scandal of scandals, even in the sixties. And you just keep go turning back the clock into the point of, I found out, uh, I guess, uh, my, my grandfather who passed away, I wouldn't have said this if he wasn't with Jesus right now. He's had every tear wiped away, but he, we found out through census data, he was born out of wedlock Mm. and he attempted to hide that his entire life. He carried that as a shame and a weight on him for, uh, I don't know, from age five to 101. And, and I look at all the hangups he had about identity and that still doesn't come close to an ancient near Eastern context. Right. So at this point, my, my, uh, context meter is pegged. I just know I can't, I can't, I don't, it's same with, we don't get, there's certain concepts because of our culture, we're crippled in understanding. Mm -hmm. We just know it's really bad. Right. Right. So those would be kind of the, you know, and and in the gospels, we kind of get the, the more exuberant stories of childhood, really just one about, you know, being lost at the temple and these types of things. But it's safe to say, you know, like, you know, whether you talk cortisol levels, stress, um, how is Jesus learning and growing uh, and in a sense, grappling with shame and trauma or possible trauma um, is happening all along. And during his childhood, like you said, in in, uh, same for Mary, same for Jesus that, you know, Roman occupation, uh, dead bodies, uh, crucifixions. um, These are things that Jesus is seeing while being raised. um, And that, that affects us. Um, And I think, I think that is, partly what we need to think of as the formation of Jesus as our savior is that he uh, is not just fully God, but he's fully human. He lived and endured through these things. And so his temptations, you know, when we think of the temptations at the at the beginning of his public ministry, it's not like he's a, this go lucky kind of, you know, guy who's kind of had the silver spoon. Who's now like, now I'm going to go do this kind of religious thing. And we're going to see how it works. And now I have these temptations. It's like, no, like these temptations are actually tapping into all the felt insecurities, stresses, and traumas that he's been going through his whole life in an occupied, you know, Israel by Roman rule, you know, based on all these other factors. Like these, these are live temptations to avoid more suffering and pain that he had already experienced. And so how would you, so then... Okay, so th- this gets into your near-death experience point. So you, we were talking before we press play. So he is, Jesus, in a sense, has near-death experience traumas, right? Luke 4, you know, it's the, the, the was he, Nazareth, the Capernaum, right? He reads the scrolls, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he kind of pegs them and says the the Gentiles are going to, you know, be included in this too. And then they want, what do they want to do? I know you're that good the Bible scholar. Everybody, every Savior must get stoned. Yeah. Right, they put they brought him to a cliffside essentially, and he ghosts some. Yeah, and so you know, somehow he gets away. But you know, he in a sense was being not just pushed physically off a cliff, but emotionally he's getting pushed toward imminent you know death, and then obviously that dissipates. And you know, so often we think of oh, it's God. You know, God has a plan. It's God's timing, and so therefore. You know, Jesus was calm, cool, and collected. He had no emotional responses, negative emotional responses in those times. Um, and I, I would say, well, maybe he didn't have any sinful emotional responses, but he didn't have 
a lack of emotional responses. So they're alleging Jesus was a reptile. How so? No emotional responses. It's like if, if Jesus is not a stoic or Jesus is not uh, just a robot and you can't have joy. You can't be a joyful person without being emotionally whole person. You can't be an emotionally whole person if you're not affected by suffering of yourself or others. Therefore, I've never met a truly joyful person that also doesn't carry a lot of sadness in their life. I think like uh, eyes sparkling with hope, though stained with tears, you know, swollen with tears or whatever. And Jesus, like, I mean, that's where it comes to, I'll I'll be honest, I haven't read the Gospels in about three years. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the catch. I've listened to them all the time. Started for several months where I listened to a Gospel every single morning. Because it was a spoken word medium, and I would change translations and stuff because I wanted to experience it new. And because of like podcasting, our brains have been trained to hear the spoken word in a more routine way than before when we just heard it maybe at a sermon or something or a lecture. Mm-hmm. Like I, my my brain has been formed about listening to stories being told. So the very act of being able to have the uninterrupted gospels with no mention of verse number. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's still an imperfect experience, but I think of the early church, you know, we got a copy of the gospel of Mark and an old copy of Titus that led a copy of the letter to Titus and this, and that was their church library. And they probably read it over and over again. And it was good. So listening to the gospels and, the, every time I listen to it, Jesus becomes more substantially emotional. Mm. And I think even uh, the artwork is often a gateway to help people kind of open up their imagination. I think even the Chosen series have done such a good job at help people think maybe the way we imagine Jesus, maybe he's saying something through a laughing tone and not a condemning tone. You know, if in a, in a shame-based culture, if an adulterer, uh, a sinful woman could physically trespass on religious leader's house to wash his feet, uh, Jesus was the anti-triggering person. You know, I've seen people who've had a, a really difficult story in their lives. It's like you have to be almost uh, a gymnast not to accidentally trigger them. But Jesus innately didn't trigger the Mary Magdalene's of the world in a very sensitive culture to those things. Mm. And that, so I imagine that now I have the work of imagining a, a Jesus who doesn't trigger, who triggers religious people, but doesn't trigger uh, the least, the last and the lost, the losers, the wimps and those with the limps and all that. And then it's heavy lifting then, but it's also beautiful. Yeah. Well, let's, let's turn and talk then about the full humanity of Jesus and then what this means for us. Cause you know, we're making this case that Jesus, you know, we could talk about him being a man of, of trauma and acquainted with sorrows and grief and how, um, this open opens up ways of understanding his ministry and life. But this is also kind of, 
I always, the way I always, you know, teach uh, theology, Christology, you know, the nature of Jesus and who he is, is always to really kind of overemphasize his humanity because so often we kind of leave that to a side. Uh, and I think uh, his emotional life is important. Um, but the fact that he, you know, and we can kind of debate terms like, was he traumatized or did he experience traumatic events uh, or did he have somehow the the resilience or the connection or the the ability to metabolize you know, traumatic events so that they wouldn't traumatize him or kind of stay in his body. The body keeps the score and these types of things, right? So, um, but his full humanity gives our full humanity hope. So can we talk about that uh, for a little bit? You kind of talk about kind of this view of this practice of evangelism uh, through just emphasizing the humanness. Yeah, I uh I think that any time that someone kind of tries to reduce the gospel to a formula, you do real violence to the story. And, you know, I know, like, for instance, I know John Calvin didn't come up with the five points of Calvinism. That was afterwards. But the idea of total depravity of human beings to say that there's we're just completely destroyed. And, you know, I've been I think more in terms of fractured beauty or vandalized artwork. Um, I've been in many occasions, whether it's been at the Parthenon or been at countless Van Gogh exhibits where I've seen art that's been damaged, that I have a spiritual experience of just viewing this artwork. You know, none of Van Gogh's paintings have the original color schema because he used inks that degraded in such a way over time where the colors are absolutely different. Mm. So I, if he saw his paintings today, he'd be like, man, I should have just I should have gotten some cash for those archival (laughs) paints or whatever. But when I look at that, but that's not where my mind goes. My mind goes to how beautiful it was. And I felt like I was actually in Amsterdam at the Van Gogh museum. And I felt like the Lord was like speaking to me. He said, that's how I see people Mm -hmm. as I see people. They're my work of art. And yeah, the work is damaged, but the beauty is there. People line up to see it. And I, so I generally presume and I'm that if I spend enough time to talking to someone, there's something God has done that is beautiful, or there's something Jesus-y about a person. Mm. And sometimes it may contradict their very worldview. I mean, I, I feel like my job, whatever is good, whatever is awesome, whatever is excellent, you know, think on these things. I used to think that was cut every sinful thing out of your life, you know, Philippians 4, eight, you know, mm. And, and you know, it's purity culture. And now I think, no, it's about sifting. It's it's sifting through the dirt to find that lost piece of jewelry. You know, the lost coin, the lost sheep. The the the, the searching for was good and excellent is there's nothing excellent about a pit, but the sheep that fell into the pit was excellent to Jesus. And so, to me, it's an act of discernment with the Holy Spirit, and. Jesus, if Jesus is inhuman, then why incarnation at all? Right. I mean, if Jesus didn't enter into our experience, I mean, we know he thirsted. He didn't have to thirst. Uh, We know that Jesus took naps. He got tired. You know, Jesus got uh, got enough of the crowds. He hit an end point at times. Uh, When we when I think of Jesus and what he's been through and uh, there's so many superlatives we can say about Jesus. Remember uh, 
Dallas Willard would talk about the genius of Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, we he says we don't talk about it because he, he was a philosophy prof, right? They talked about the genius of Jesus. And I was thinking about the emotional robustness of Jesus. Like Jesus was the most holy emotional person. And we're holy this, and holy. He was yeah. whole and oh holy. yeah, that's yeah. A, is that is that called a homonym or that's mm, it's one of those. I don't don't one talk to you about language stuff. Okay. But yes, I can continue. He was holy, emotional, emotionally and, holy. And what I've noticed is like uh, in doing ministry, uh, and I've spent a significant number of years doing ministry with kids who've been traumatized almost. I mean, I worked with a whole group of kids, all of them witnessed someone's head literally kind of blown off with a firearm and, and left in a parking lot for hours. Oh, man. And I've seen in what I noticed with those kids there was emotional deadness that came over them. Like it's almost the emotional meter in their neighborhood got turned down a little. There was just a more of a gray about everyone that lived in this neighborhood, just to have a tactic. And they were getting hard. Yeah. And uh, I think that's the natural trajectory of humans is to become animals to survive. You know, animals are either rabbits. You know, I always think of the, you know, this is not a lion witch in the wardrobe. I think of um, the rabbit, the wolf, and the messiah. Mm-hmm. You know, rabbits and wolves live out of their amygdala. You know, a rabbit doesn't predate on any meat eaters, but it knows how to run. Or it gets frozen or it flees. And a wolf, in general, will uh, predate. It will kill. And I think when humans are beastly because they have this beast human continuum. That's why I think the mark of the beast imagery mm-hmm. in the beast imagery is so important because the ops of God isn't this sophisticated human is even the ops of God is a pure unleashed predator. Mm-hmm. And the kingdom is the lion is on predator. Ed, you know, the lion lays down with the lamb. So right. the idea that, the fear of the lamb and the predation of the lion are gone in the new creation. So if that's true, then Jesus, uh, Jesus was the most human, meaning he knew instead of knowing he knew joy and he knew sorrow. He didn't know. He didn't live a hundred percent according to reflex and fear. Right. And I found that what I, with my walk with, uh, God is, you know, I ended up, I've done, as I pursued a lot of the spiritual practices of, you know, silence, uh, centering prayer, meditation on scripture, you know, uh, really uh, spending time with Jesus outdoors, you know, getting out in nature and stuff. And the more I've spent like uh, in imaginative prayer, especially, I've become more emotional. And I've always been a pretty volatile, emotionally volatile person. But in 94, my mom died of cancer. I was 24. And that rocked my world. I went to a depression. She was my best friend. I was a mama's boy, definitely. And I remember the feelings. And then I'm 50 now and, you know, just buried my dad. Mm. And it still doesn't seem real. And I, I kind of made this commitment like six years ago. Or now maybe eight years ago, I want to try to call my dad every day and I want to have every conversation like it's going to be my last and tell him I love you so much, dad. And really use gushy language, which wasn't his thing, really. Until the end, he 
over the last few years, he started to mirror the gushy love language. That's right. Um, and I thought I was going to insulate myself from a horrible transition when he died. And actually, it my experience was like at least doubly hard than losing my mom. Mm-hmm. And it's this is common. We're all at the age where we're burying our parents. You know this. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking, it's like, I think what's happened is because of I've had 30 some years of pursuing Jesus between those two, uh, 26 years of pursuing Jesus between those two deaths. That 26 years, Jesus has replaced my anger with grief. I still have anger, but instead, you know, anger is secondary emotion. I grieve and lament more than I get angry. And I don't experience euphoria much, but I experience joy. I feel like I've got a sophisticated emotional life. And because of that, my sorrow has radically increased. Mm. Right. And that's been your trajectory as a person and believing as we do. I think it's Jesus' fault. Yeah, yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. Believing as we do that, you know, God has a personal life, uh, and even a, a an emotional life, and and it is a perfect reflection of those things. That Jesus Himself um, was the the perfect human, and so His expansive range of highs and lows, of joys and sorrows, of being able to laugh and rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping, that capacity on the highs and the lows is so much more than even what you just explained that you've been growing over twenty five years and even beyond that. And that's really what Jesus is calling us into. And so a lot of times, you know, we sell the gospel short. We sell this thing, salvation short, when we make it seem like you're going to be happy and feel good all the time. When really we should be saying, um, you will receive life and you'll become the fullest human you could possibly be. And sometimes that'll be joyously joyful. And sometimes that'll be grievously sorrowful, but it'll all be life and it'll be relationally rich and we're receiving a family. I just want to end with uh, this from Hebrews chapter two, which is often kind of neglected when it comes to our understanding of who Jesus was and what he did for us. Hebrews two verse 10 in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Of course, the pioneer is Jesus himself, but the one who makes people holy and those, and we could think of the holy and the holy, like the, with the W and the H, but those who make people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And then skipping down a little bit to verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, speaking of us, uh, those who need to be saved, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For this reason, he was made like them fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God because he, he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted in every way. So Jesus, for our salvation, so that we become sons and daughters of God, became like us in every way and suffered every temptation and suffered the human nature, the human predicament, which includes sorrows and traumas. So as we kind of continue to journey with Jesus toward Easter, 
those are some of the things, uh, at least that I've been thinking about, that you were thinking about. Any last uh, thoughts or wonderings from that passage? Or um, it, I actually thinking of Jesus in this way is giving me more compassion for evil people. Mm. As I, because I look at uh, the joys of Jesus and the sorrows of Jesus. And I'm thinking of people who pursue power and prestige or one-upmanship, you know, whether it's in the uh, corporate or relational or political arena, they've not known the sorrow of Jesus because they're a bit too busy inflicting sorrow or inflicting trauma. And they may have known euphoria, but they've never known joy. Mm-hmm. they've never known joy the, look at the most powerful people in the world the people and i look and i say on sunday every sunday i walk around the back of the church and i just think this is a living art installation of the most precious people in the universe mm-hmm. and every one of them is a walking story of god's grace and i'm like i get to almost swim in the joy of that and I'm like, can you imagine not having that experience of being able to reverence Christ in others? But that only you can't have that if you avoid pain and people inflict pain in their avoidance of pain. Yeah. yeah. So that could be a whole nother whole nother conversation how we could have compassion for the predators uh and uh become more compassion even for those who have the trauma of being prey. Well, Jeff, thanks for uh, jumping on uh, in the morning and just kind of sharing some of these thoughts and joining with us. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm sure we'll keep always, talking. Always good to talk to the whole squads. We need to get three windows up here and get Sid up here too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll do that again sometime too. Well, as always, you can uh, listen to this podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google. Uh, it's on Spotify. Just... Uh, google embodied faith uh you can find this uh the videos on my youtube channel jeffrey holsclaw so easy to find on the interwebs uh jeff's uh where can we find you for your musings and thoughts uh i'm on facebook and instagram and but if you go to uh central vineyard church there's three of them in the world uh i preach there often and there's podcasts of me preaching excellent excellent that's a jeff with a j not to be confused with the jeff with the yeah. g so you know you, we have... I, and i do have the derivative <laughs> the, the americanized version all right well thanks again jeff and i'm sure we'll be uh talking soon this is the way <laughs> amen mm-hmm.